Hey, this is Darren Tyler. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast from Conduit Church. Conduit is a community of Christ followers that meets in the Nashville area. If you'd like more information about what's going on here or around the world through Conduit, you can go to conduitchurch.com. For the world in general, because I don't know if you've turned on the news lately, but some things are going a little haywire. Even if you have, you know, there's people refer to certain types of eschatology, including the view that I would hold as, quote, hand-me-down theology. And I'm fine with that, because I feel like it was handed down from Paul. So if that's, if that's it, then I'll take it. Uh, guilty as charged. But even if you don't agree with my view on eschatology, you can look at the world and say, this is a weird time right now. I mean, when you've got... I don't mean to get political. When you got Nancy Pelosi being the war hawk, I mean, what in the world is going on in our world? And the answer is, is that things are, are I, I believe, following a playbook that the Lord wrote a long, long time ago. And if you've got your Bibles, uh, would you go with me to the book of Revelation? We continue on our scenic route through the book. We go through the Bible chapter by chapter verse by verse, because I believe the word is enough. It just is. Uh, There is promises in here. There is uh, the future in here. There is hope in these 66 books that like 40 different authors throughout thousands of years that the Lord miraculously wound together. And, And the reason that I really feel that the Lord led us to Revelation as the book that we're in right now is that it takes us through everything. There are no, John doesn't give us any new ideas in here. This is just the Old Testament unpacked and woven together all into one. It's all these pieces. It's like my child at the end of the Lego thing, the Millennium Falcon. All of a sudden it looks, because that's what Revelation is. And the, the lie is, is that it's hard, that it's confusing, it's weird, so we don't read it because we don't understand it. But the word itself, Revelation, apocalypsis in the Greek, is just means to uncover It wasn't to cover up the lie, it was that we would cover it up. And this just uncovers. It uncovers the future, it uncovers the present, because John was writing to a church who was going through unbelievable suffering. And as a pastor, as a poet, these words would have brought a lot of encouragement to them. It brings a lot of encouragement to our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, I promise you that. And we find ourselves in Revelation 8, verse 6, as these trumpet judgments are unfolding. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you know that there's the bowl judgments, uh, the the, the trumpets. These are three different sets of judgments. And and the trumpets basically are the part where the earth is paying off its debt. The, The wages of sin is death. And we live in a fallen world. When you have a tornado hit your house and it says an act of God and you mark that in your thing, that, that's, that's ridiculous. We live in a fallen world. A world that's going to be set right. And this is part of that being set right. And I believe that we won't be here for this piece that's being written here. I believe this is a future looking. His chapters 1 is what, right, right, those things which you see, which he saw Jesus Chapters 2 and 3, right? Those things which are, which is the church, the church age, which is what I believe it represents us even to today. 
And then he says, write those things. This is Revelation 1.9, that are to come, metatauta. And chapter 4, verse 1 starts out with metatauta. After these things, I saw this. In chapters 4 and 5, is the church is in heaven at that point. You don't see the church mentioned again in Revelation. You see saints, you see different people mentioned that are followers of, of Christ, but not the church, because I believe they're in heaven. And meanwhile, back on earth, we find ourselves in Revelation 8, and it's a very fascinating passage, because he says that the first angel sounded, actually verse 6, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, and mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, verse 8, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And verse 10, and then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star is Wormwood. If you've got your Russian Bible with you this morning, and I'm sure all of you do, does you version have one of those? I don't know. But the Russian translation, fascinatingly enough, of Wormwood is Chernobyl. Do with that what you want. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. In verse 12, and then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, and so that a third of them were darkened, and a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Interesting, because I would have thought that would have been enough woes in the first, but it's, we're about to take it up a notch. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we are entering your word in a, an important time in history. And I would ask, Lord, for you to give us wisdom this morning. Unity on the things that we can agree on and, and that you would at the same time open our hearts something doesn't exactly fit with my thing or your thing, or that you would give us the desire to go and to search the scriptures for ourselves and to be like the Bereans. And that this wouldn't just be a roadmap for us as a people, but for us as individuals, a glimpse at the heart of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. How... Many prophecies, just to guess, if you had one this morning, would you guess are in the Bible? Anybody got a, just a random number? Like, there are enough theologians, somebody might actually know it. Guess? 700, someone said? 3,000? Theologians, and theologians, by theologians, I mean guys that are smarter than me that have more time than I do. They generally will have a tweed jacket with those little elbow pads, you know, and, and I'm so grateful for those guys because the Lord has those guys for a purpose so that they can uh, do some work that guys like me are not necessarily uh, qualified to do. But theologians vary on their number uh, based upon, for instance, it might be two verses but one prophecy, but so some might count that as two. Or, but but the, the median number of that is actually 2,500. 
prophecies in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is 27% when you count all the verses and which ones are prophecy. 27% of it is prophecy. So the idea that we ought to ignore it or uh, it's too hard to understand or it's too weird or it's too... God inspired uh, 40 authors and 27% of what they wrote, almost a third, was, was this. Interesting to me, maybe to you, that of the 2,500 prophecies in the Bible, that 2,000 of them were already fulfilled. Done. Four out of five dentists choose dentine. <laughs> Four out of five prophecies have been fulfilled. And when I think of a number like that, the question becomes, do I believe that those other 500, give or take, are not fulfilled because God was wrong or because they're yet to come? Metatauta. And am I willing to bet that maybe this, what he's saying to the future, isn't actually accurate and that I can pretend? I mean, if God took the trouble to give 27% of Scripture to this, is it worth it for me to say, I'm going to go ahead and just pretend that's not there because that's really just a big bummer? Or is it like when you go out of town, parents, and what do you do? You pre- if you're, you leave your kids, you prepare them. Hey, don't answer the door if this happens. If when the FedEx guy comes, do this. You give them a, a heads up on stuff because it helps them to be prepared. That's what Revelation has been to us. It's like the instruction book for, hey, I'm going to go away for a little bit. And when the FedEx guy comes, this and that, and this, this book was a, a, a promise to us, but a prophecy to help us map out our future. He said that he was going to return. And I don't know about you, but if God, his, his track record for keeping promises is pretty good. When he told Abraham, you're going to be a father of many nations. He kept that promise. When he told Rahab that you're going to be protected and you're going to be saved, not only was she saved, she's in the bloodline of Christ. When he told David about being king, when am I to think that the only promise that he's not going to keep is the one that he's not going to return? I'm not willing to go there. I'm not willing to write this off as something that I get to ignore because it's kind of a bummer. Because, quite frankly, the opposite is true. That when I look to what's going on in the world right now, that's a bummer. But when I cross-reference it with my word, with the promises that God gave me, it's like, oh, okay, he's got this under control. One of the prophecies that has not been fulfilled is about a city called... Damascus. In Isaiah chapter 17, if you've got your Bible, you can go there. I'll leave it up there for a minute. It says, The burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city. Could you back that up? Because I bumped it and now you'll have the. There you go. Derek and his battlefield promotion. And it will be a ruinous heap. And he goes on to talk about what's going to happen in the area, the, the, the remnant of Syria. They will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. 
there's amazing promises for the future of Syria. But interestingly enough, that one says that it will cease to be a city. Now, there are theologians that say that this actually happened to Damascus when Assyrians invaded them and took over the city. But the problem is, is that means God was wrong. Because Damascus is, if not the oldest, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities on the planet. It has never ceased to be a city. In fact, in the early days of the church, it became a very central point. What road was Paul on when he was stopped and blinded but on the road to Damascus? A lot of the work of the early church, Antioch, those things, they were all in that specific region. It's been a critical part. It's never ceased to be a city. It's, it seems to indicate that at some point... And Darren, are you saying that that's what's happening right now? No, I don't know. That's way above my pay grade. And quite frankly, if the Lord had this in his plans, you think he would let us know? Because then Satan knows. You understand Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He's not, uh, unlike our country, he's not going to send an Evite to the war. Reply all. <laughs> Regrets. He's not going to send a notice ahead of time. To what, but he's given us enough of a playbook we can look back and say, oh, this has happened. But in the future, if, if this is the future, this is kind of a big deal. And you look to Revelation 8, and there are those who would actually would say that Revelation 8 could be a comet. It could be, I mean, it talks about fire from the sky and hailstones. It could just be God doing what God can do if he chooses to. It could be a nuclear exchange. It could be, we have the technology for the first time in the history of the human race. We have the technology literally to destroy everybody. And throughout history of humanity, we've never, humans have never developed a war weapon that they have not actually used. At some point, that's going to happen. Now, that, that's a bummer. But Jesus is going to return. Jesus has got, the, the faith of the future is in Jesus. If, if we've learned anything, <laughs> it's certainly not in our political solutions. It's not in our war solutions. And when I look at, a, when I look at this passage, you're like, man, I just visited for the first time. What a bummer. Hang with me. <laughs> because what... I feel like Revelation 8 is what Isaiah 17 is, is, like I said, God saying, hey, I'm going to be gone. Jesus, those parables over and over again were, hey, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be back. You know, occupy till I come. All the parables, the kingdom parables were about that. This kingdom that we get to occupy until he returns and brings, I believe, his kingdom quite literally to earth. In the meantime, we occupy. And this Prophecy is literally just an invitation for us to prepare. That's it. Hey, this stuff is coming. There's stuff that most likely will happen after the Lord takes us as a, as a church away for the seven years. But if this happens before, what do we do as a church? How do we handle this as individual believers? Your kids are talking about it. They're hearing about it. They have Instagram. How can we encourage our children? How can we be good parents 
in this? How can we be disciples and followers of Jesus at a time like this? And I think that there are four things that I'd like to just plant into your mind as an options that I think the Lord wants us to do in light of the idea of, of, of a Revelation 8. But look, even if you don't agree with me that that's a future and you, you're a preterist, you think that happened already, the world is upside down right now. So even if you don't believe why, we can't agree on why, we maybe could agree on what we need to do. And the first thing that I think you've got to do, we must do, is learn. First Chronicles 12 said that the men of Issachar were understood the times they lived in and they knew what to do. It was the smallest of the tribes and it's sandwiched in between all of that. I want us to be like the men and the women of Issachar, to understand the times we live in and to know what to do. Issachar was a small group. We might be a small group, but somebody needs to know what to do. I just was talking to somebody this morning and it was like, it's just so confusing. I don't know what, I don't even know what to do. I was reading an interview yesterday. There's been this kind of a joke floating around about all these anti-war celebrities that have gone MIA all of a sudden. Ain't nobody talking. And and they found Ed Asner, uh, apparently hiding out. No, he, um, and he, but he said, well, what does it even matter? You know, he's kind of that cantankerous old, you know, guy. And what does it even matter? This guy that's so passionate about it, just doesn't care because you can't change anything. It just ain't, nothing's going to change. That's what Hollywood is saying. I think that what a lot of our churches are saying is actually silence. I don't blame them. This is not, this is kind of a a nerve-wracking thing to talk about because I don't know what you're going to freak out. I don't want, but we've got to be prepared. We've got to learn. We've got to know. We've got to understand that it's <laughs> got to understand it actually isn't even that complicated. If you break down what's happening in Syria right now, it's no different than what happened in Iraq and Iran, Afghanistan. Those dark green areas are what is referred to as areas that are predominantly Shia Islam. Are you familiar with the term Shia? The light green are Sunni. What's happening inside of Syria is you've got an Alawite president, which Alawite is an offshoot of Shia, who actually is in an area, if you look at Syria, look at, it's predominantly Sunni. But here's the president who is Alawite, who is Shia, and quite frankly, took power because the Sunnis were persecuting and continue to do that in Iraq and other places. In Egypt, one of the, the main fears of the Muslim Brotherhood is if the, of the Shia Islam, if the Sunnis take power, Muslim Brotherhood, they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be tortured and murdered. And so in rare cases throughout history, we've had a Shia president over a Sunni area. That was Iraq. Saddam Hussein was a, uh, the exact opposite, a Sunni guy in a Shia world. And he was hated by Iran. Why does they hate them? We think of Islam, there's this feeling that it's like Christianity. It's just everybody's a little bit the same. 
But it's not like that at all. It's not like Charismatics or Lutherans or Baptists or, or uh, uh, Charismatics. It's more like... It's more like Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland a few years back. And it starts all the way back at the beginning. At the very beginning of Islam, that is. Because the Sunni side of things, when Muhammad dies, this is 612 AD, Muhammad has seen a vision. He thinks it's actually originally... He thinks it's actually demonic and witchcraft. Interesting. It was his wife that talked him into it, that it was actually from the Lord. So Muhammad, this thing starts and Islam is born. And then Muhammad does something that Jesus uh, didn't do. He, uh, Muhammad stayed dead. Now that sort of causes a problem because there wasn't a succession plan in place. And so on the Sunni side, you end up with a guy named, uh, I'm just going to write the shortness of his last name, Bakr, just so you guys can uh, write it down. But Bakr, Abu Bakr, was on the Sunni side, he was a confidant, uh, he was like his right-hand man. It would be like if the guy that was the vice president of the corporation, the president dies, the vice president takes over. It seemed very obvious that he was the guy that would take over. But there was another group in Islam that said, no, no, no. It needs to be somebody who is in the bloodline that's related to him. And so what better way than to take his, uh, his brother-in-law and cousin, which were the same guy. <laughs> Ali. And he's the successor. So now you've got the, what would turn out to be the Shia, the Shiite people would follow this idea that it has to be a guy following in this bloodline, and it would be the direct bloodline from Ali, until today, by the way, that they're looking for. When you hear reference to the 12th Imam from the president of Iran, from the Ayatollah, what they're referring to was each one of these guys down the bloodline, each son, each next successor, until they got to the 11th, and then the 11th died, and his son mysteriously, supposedly disappeared. Some say he fell down a well. But he's gone. And so what they await now is the return of the 12th imam. That's what they're talking about. When Ahmadinejad stands in front of the United Nations and talks about hastening the return of the 12th imam, that's what he's talking about. And he's saying it in terms of we can do this by bloodshed, by war. We can increase the, we can make him come back by conquering in the name of Shia Islam. And meanwhile... This is a minority of Islam. There's 15%, give or take, of the entire world's Islamic population is Shia. The other is Sunni. Now, before we give them a pass, remember that countries like Saudi Arabia are predominantly Sunni Islam. That's why the majority of the hijackers on 9-11 were from Saudi Arabia, not from Iran. Because these guys, between Shia and Sunni, do not get along with each other. When they talk about it as sectarian violence, that's a crock. This is a religious war for the heart of Islam. And when they say, when Iran says, we want the flag of Islam to fly all over the world, 
They're talking about a different flag than Osama is talking, well, talked about. He's in the bottom of an ocean now, which makes it a little harder to talk. A different flag than he was talking about. They do not get along with each other at all, and one or the other wins. Thus the reason in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood rising up to get rid of a uh, secular government because they want the flag of Islam there, of Sunni Islam to fly. The reason that the uh, Arab Spring that we, for some reason, celebrated went so terribly wrong was it was a rise of a group of Sunni, radical Sunni Islamic guys wanting the flag of Islam to fly all over the Middle East. And they saw a window of opportunity. They're watching it right now in Syria when they're rising up against Abbas, who's the Alawite Shia guy. If we can overthrow him, then our flag can fly from here. And I say all of that to say, when it's good versus bad, it's easy to know which side to pick. But when it's bad guy against bad guy, which side do you pick? I'm going to answer that in a minute. But it's important that we know this because it gives us the reality that our government isn't going to be the one to solve it. And I'm going to show you why. I hope you don't find this uh, too offensive. I thought it was kind of funny. Um, I need audio on this. You're going to want to start it over. It's spectacular. Think fast. Is Al-Qaeda Sunni or Shiite? As our country says, his question is, what's Saddam Hussein, Shiite or Sunni, and what group is Al-Qaeda? You could explain that, couldn't you, Congressman? Sure. The, the uh, Al-Qaeda is uh, our uh, uh, Shiite. Well, it's common knowledge and has been reported in the media that uh, the that al-Qaeda is going back into Iran and receiving training and are coming back into Iraq from Iran. That's, that's well known. I'm sorry, the Iranians are, are training extremists, not al-Qaeda, not al-Qaeda, I'm sorry. that the guys that have their finger on the trigger don't know the most basic tenets of what's actually going on on the ground. That's kind of an important thing to know. And it's why it's so confusing. I mean, I've, I think the most confused people in the world right now probably would be Al-Qaeda going, you know, what, they're actually going to pay for this? They're going to they're gonna be our proxy army and overthrow that guy? My point is really actually pretty simple. Somebody has to know this stuff. It's much more complex. It's much more sophisticated, complicated than a good versus evil thing. Because this is ground zero in the Middle East, the war for ultimately Israel and Jerusalem. We have to know because somebody needs to be able to pray. We need to learn. And once we have learned... And as we continue to learn, I believe that we get to, oh, by the way, yeah, that was just a couple years ago. 
was uh, when Pelosi went and met with um, Assad and called him a reformer. Um, they're learning now. And you're like, Darren, this is entirely more political than I may ever wanted to be church. I, I get that, and I'm not trying to be political. What I'm trying to do is to tell you that if your hope is in a government, you are going to be monumentally, cataclysmically, cosmically hosed. Not just our government, any government. When Jesus said that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord, that's true. I think it's honestly because we'll be able to look back at that point and say, oh man, we tried this every which way but loose for 6,000 years and we didn't get it right. We'll be able to say, yeah, Jesus, when it says the government will be on his shoulders, we'll be able to say, hey, that, I don't know if I 100% understand why you're doing that, Jesus, but I know every which way we tried it didn't work. And we'll bow our knees to him, not because somebody's forcing us to. We'll bow our knees because we're like, oh, finally someone who gets it. We've got to learn. We've got to know what's going on because then we know how to pray. As a body of believers, that's something not just something we get to do. We must do this. We must be praying for, right now, 2 million refugees out of Syria living in tents and in refugee camps. 100,000 people are dead in that country in this war. We've got to be praying for them. Pray as the Bible tells us to pray. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. One of my favorite prayers in the Bible is in the very end in Revelation where John says, even so, come, Lord, come. Pray. It's our opportunity to talk to God about it. It's our opportunity to model to our children what we get to do about it. But I don't think that we stop there. Faith without works is dead. We can't become a people that doesn't pray. We also cannot become a people that says, that's all I can do is pray. We get to do both. And seeking the Lord for how we can be a part of this great end time harvest of souls that I believe is happening all around the world. It's not getting on the news. But the story is coming out of the Middle East of Jesus appearing to Muslims are everywhere. They're beginning to leak out, and it's amazing, these young men. What's happening with, with Russ Adams and his Bible college there? That's 180 kids that just went through four years of Bible college that are graduated, men and women, and they are now going. He talks more about the plans of sending them to places throughout Egypt to start other Bible colleges, to plant churches, to go and to be disciples to those people. Because the fact of the matter is, is if we bomb them, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. Do you notice that? Has 10 years taught us at least that? It rises more up, but if, if the gospel happens to be true, and I believe that it is, the power of a transformed life, 180 men and women willing to die for their faith, going in and preaching this freedom, because if you've been around Islam, you know one thing, it is not a freedom religion. When you're wearing a head covering and as a woman, when you're a piece of property, when you, you've, if of everything that you can say that Islam is, freedom is not one of it. And you preach the gospel of Jesus and say that Muhammad was wrong and say that Jesus is Lord. And then God does crazy stuff like he does, like people get out of wheelchairs, blind people see. That's happening right now all over the world. 
And we tell you what, it's kind of handy when you say Allah is not Akbar, but Jesus is, and somebody gets out of a wheelchair. We have to pray for our brothers and sisters who are on the front lines to be a part of it, but I think we can't stop there. I think we also have to, uh, I'm going to talk to you about the prayer vigil. We have to give. And I'm not about to take up the big offering here for conduit, but I'm saying by giving, you are putting yourself in the supply line of the war for the souls of humanity. You are a part of investing in a guy like Russ Adams can't do what he does without us being involved in it. What's happening with Saeed in Iran, his wife and children are taken care of because brothers and sisters in Christ are giving and taking care. Giving is us. It's our playing a part in the supply line of the war. And if you're not currently giving to global mission, there are so many great opportunities to do that. I'm a little biased to one. It's conduitmission.org. If you're visitor or you're new, you may not know, but we, our mission is actually a completely separate entity. It's two sides of the same coin. We're separate only, in, I guess, in the eyes of the government, but separate in that we have people partnering with us all over, and we plan on partnering with what's happening. I haven't even had a chance to talk to David about this because I just talked to Russ last night. I want to go to Egypt. I want to invest in disciples there. I want to invest in disciples in Guatemala, where we've already been. I want to continue to invest in Togo, Africa. Where we are in Togo is right on the, the line of Burkina Faso. You could spit into Burkina Faso if you're a good spitter. And Burkina Faso is one of the poorest nations on earth and full of Islam. Our little Bible institute over there just graduated, I think, 10 or 12 students. There's already, by the way, there's now two conduit churches in Africa. You probably didn't even know that. I just learned it. Because one of those little guys that graduated from the Bible Institute went back to his village and started a church, and he didn't know what else to call it, so he called it Conduit. <laughs> we don't own it. We're not branding it. We're like making them use the logo or not, you know, none of that. But it's just but what's happening is disciples make disciples. And we've made making disciples so hard, and really, I, I love it because what David talked about not long ago, uh, if you guys didn't get that, you can go back and listen to David. Holderman's message about how easy it is to make disciples. We're making disciples right now in our kids' area. Uh, you're making disciples in the babies. We're making disciples in Togo. But giving is an incredible, essential part of that. Those brothers and sisters who are coming out of Syria right now, who are desperately poor, who have nothing, who many of them left in the middle of the night with literally nothing but a teddy bear because their town was being bombed, and now they've gone to Iraq, because if you, and you know, if Iraq is a better option than where you are, that's not good. They're in, in refugee camps in Iraq, and in Turkey, in Jordan. Pray for the Lord to open the doors there, how we can give into that. And then finally, we, know, we can't just learn about it, we can't just pray, and some of us we're all called, called to give, but some of us are going to be called to actually to go. To go ourselves. And we are a room full of goers. I, I know that God is stirring in some families' hearts right now. Again, he's already moving. Some you know, families have got moving into other countries and other places. And, and we don't want to 
discredit what's happening here as well because we this is this church this thing is like a platform that we can work from i've said it before but you don't just swim out into the gulf to drill for oil you go out there and you build a platform and something to work from and this church has proven to be that so what we do here is critical you being here on sunday that's a critical part of it you giving to what we're doing here that's a critical part of it and some of us god is going to call to go some of it will be full-time, some of it will be short-term trips. We don't own it here. We don't say you've got to go just on our trips. If the Lord's moving, I mean, uh, Dolores went to Haiti last year, and she didn't go with us, but we were right, we're right behind and supporting what she's doing and what God did there. If it's Nepal, if it's India, if it, wherever the Lord is putting on your heart, we don't want to own it and say, oh, no, you're a court conduit mission. We want to be a thing where we own you. We're just, all we want to do is just prepare you to do the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4, so simple. But some of you are going to be called to go. Some of you that have never gone will be called to go. I love Russell's words. He's like, you know, I just, I'd give my life for this thing. I, 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 and you can see the passion in him. I'm going to post the whole interview because I ask him, what's it like to be around 180 graduates, 500 students all together, 500 brothers and sisters who have literally risked their lives, who know that they could be, and, and it happens all the time, rocks being thrown at them. He told the story of one of the people, that one of the graduates whose home and business was burned down while they were inside, they had to escape through the roof. What's it like being around those kind of people? And that's sort of what spurred that conversation of that passion. You could just feel it coming out of him that it makes me want to go the extra mile. It inspires me. I, I feel like I'm tired and I can't take any more. And I think, man, that guy just had his shop burned down. I can go an extra mile. When you go, it isn't just about the people that you're reaching. Jesus, when it said he sent the disciples, in Luke 11, I think, he said he sent them two by two, and they came back full of great joy because of what they had seen. When you're going and making disciples, it is the most fulfilling thing. It's not a bummer. It's not, I mean, it's not even a sacrifice. It's awesome. It's amazing. They came back full of great joy because of what they had seen. Some of you are going to be called to go. What I know is this, in, in closing, we cannot do nothing. Nothing is not an option. Not in the kingdom, it's not. Jesus' invitation for us to participate in his calling says that, hey, not where's God with what's going on in Syria. The question is, where is the church? I gave you the keys to the kingdom. Go forth and be the kingdom. Go be the kingdom in Syria. Go be the kingdom in Haiti. Jesus' prayer that we would be one. Father's will would be done here in heaven as it is in heaven. Jesus, we want to see thy kingdom come. It's a prayer that has been answered in our minds and hearts and hopes. Ultimately, it's the hope that Jesus is coming back to set up his kingdom again. And we have that hope. And you have that hope. You get the keys. You have that privilege. You have that hope. Thank you, Father, for your word. We give you all the praise.
Says, set aside those things that are so easily beset you. That's what I love about you know, we're trying to introduce you. We're trying to get through, get rid of debt, get those things that own you. Whether it's money, whether it's emotions, whether it's relationships, those things that so easily beset you. Set them aside, throw them aside because the kingdom of God is yours. Russ said that the prayer, I asked him, how can we pray? He's like, the same prayer that Jesus prayed. Pray for those who are oppressed. Pray for those who are so much need to pray for those who are oppressed. My prayer for you this morning as individuals is that you would be able to hopefully follow our lead as a church as you pray. Ah, this church is really a church for those of us who are what? Who are oppressed. We don't want you to be here today because we're uncomfortable to hear it because we don't want us to be here. This is a chance for us to come to hear you talked about and part of each other, but then we just ten minutes just for church after ten minutes all together and we'll come forth. Those same three right before us. Oh, and when you come together to invoke one another, we'll greet you. Oh, great, we're here. What do we do? We bow down. What does that mean? Oh, to invoke you, to do good things, to invoke each other. I double dog dare you to listen to what the voice of the Spirit is saying to you this morning. Consider yourself provoked.